I got this statement I want to read to you here, and I want you to uh, kind of react to it. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. You're walking down the streets of New York, and someone says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And you walk on the other side of the sidewalk because this guy is nuts, right? And that's exactly that is exactly how a lot of the people around Jesus responded when they heard him say this. They thought Jesus was nuts. And from one perspective, it is a pretty crazy statement, right? Who's going to say, hey, you got to be cannibals or, you know, a little vampire action over here, right? What's, what's, you know, that is kind of a, a, an out-of-the-box sort of a statement. But from another perspective, don't you kind of want to know what's behind that? I mean, is this person certifiable or are they actually brilliant? And maybe we just don't understand what they're saying. And so the question I want to ask today is, why would Jesus make such a radical statement, such an outrageous statement that he knew people were going to misunderstand and that he knew was actually going to end up turning some people off to him. So why would Jesus make that kind of an outrageous statement? And in order to answer that question, we need to go back to the previous day and we need to uh, look at the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a little different than the summary that you got on the screen before. Um, You know, they weren't doing a little Beatles action and the whole thing. Um, But we want to look at it in the Gospel of John, uh, which is one of Jesus' biographies. And if you've been with us this fall or if you haven't, we've been spending a lot of time in the Gospel of John looking at different scenes from Jesus' life. And so here's one that's recorded in John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where, where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? Jesus asked this only to test Philip, for he had in mind what he was going to do. Think of the scene here. 5,000 people. Actually, it's probably more like 10, 15, even 20,000 people because it was 5,000 men. So they probably had wives and children with them as well. You got 15, maybe 20,000 people there. Jesus says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread? Knowing that it is a completely impossible situation and knowing full well what he's going to do with that. What he's trying to do is teach Philip. He's using this as a teachable moment to kind of wake Philip up, shake him out of his complacency, and get him to see beyond the day-to-day reality, the physical reality in which Philip lives his life on a daily basis. So Philip responds. He says, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everybody to have one bite. Another one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother spoke up. He said, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and a couple of small fish, but how far are they going to go with so many people here? Jesus says, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And so they sat down. There were about 5,000 men there, as I'm saying, about maybe 15, 20,000 different people. And Jesus then took the loaves. He gives thanks. He prays. And he distributes to those who were seated, and each of them had as much as they wanted. 
And he did the same thing with the fish. Jesus didn't say, okay, everybody gets a small little piece. We're going to ration it. You each get a crumb. You know, even there, it's not going to feed 15, 20,000 people. Everybody had enough to meet their needs. But notice what Jesus did. He stops and he prays and he give thanks, gives thanks to his heavenly father. What he's doing is for the 12 disciples and anybody else who is close enough to hear and see what he's doing, he's acknowledging that what is about to happen is ultimately coming from God. It's ultimately coming from his heavenly father. And so he wants to point them to that spiritual reality. It's another teachable moment. So then verse 12, when they had all had enough to eat, they're all satisfied. He said to his disciples, go and gather up the pieces that are left over. Don't let anything be wasted. So they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. 12 disciples, 12 baskets, one for each of you. You're going around you're picking up the leftover pieces of bread. You're putting it in your basket. You're holding your basket and you realize there is probably more food in my basket than there was when we started this whole thing. And my 11 buddies have more food in their baskets and everybody has eaten all the food that they wanted to eat. Who is this guy? Who is he? How did he take five loaves, two small fish, feed 15, 20,000 people, and then end up with enough left over that we could eat for a couple of days on what's left over for us? Jesus wanted to give his disciples a tangible illustration of the power of God, that God can do so much beyond what we can imagine. And he did it in a way that was designed to provoke them to move from the physical food to the spiritual reality in which they lived, but which they probably weren't conscious of most of the time because their lives were so focused on go fishing and eat and take care of your physical needs and and this day in and day out. And so Jesus is trying to wake them up to the physical reality, uh, to the spiritual reality that's around them. And so verse 14, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. And this, this reference to the prophet actually looks back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, where God through Moses promised that there was going to be a prophet who was going to rise and do some amazing things. And they're saying, is this Is Jesus that prophet who's being spoken of there? Is this that messianic figure that we know of from the book of Deuteronomy? They're beginning to ask. They're beginning to see that there's something beyond the physical reality. But watch what happens here. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus knew they wanted to make him king by force. Here's magic Jesus. He just took five loaves and two fish and fed 15,000 different people. Hey, maybe he can do more than that. Let's make magic Jesus king and he can feed us all the food we could ever want and he could deliver us from the Roman domination and he can make Israel great once again. Let's use Jesus for our own purposes. And the irony of the situation is that Jesus 
absolutely was king. But kings aren't kings on our terms. Kings are kings on their terms. Jesus is king only on his terms. He did not come to meet their agenda. He came to advance his own agenda, his own purposes, which, as we'll see in a little while, ultimately are so much better than the agenda that they had for themselves. Yes, he cared about them, and he fed, he fed them with fish and with, with uh, bread, but he wanted something so much more for them, and they weren't ready for it yet. So Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to step aside for a little bit. And so he goes off to a mountain by himself because they weren't quite ready yet for what he had to offer them. So let's move ahead to the next day and see what happens. And in between, overnight, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus' 12 disciples had gotten into a boat, crossed the lake to the other side. Out in the middle of the lake, this storm arose. Jesus comes walking on the water to them, uh, calms the storm. Immediately, they're there on the other side. And the next day, the people come looking for him, don't find him. They go to the other side of the lake, and they find Jesus and his disciples there. And we pick up the action down in verse 25. And so when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Watch what Jesus does. He says, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for this food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, which I will give you. For on him, on me, Jesus is saying, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus is saying, you missed the point of the miracle. I'm trying to open you up to something beyond bread and fish. You want lunch. I want to give you life. You want me to fill your stomach. I want to fill your soul. And they weren't getting it. They weren't seeing this. They were stuck in the physical realm, but Jesus wanted to move them to the spiritual realm because he knew how much they needed that. So he goes on and he uses a metaphor uh, to get them, to try to get them unstuck uh, from, from where their minds were at this point. So then Jesus declares, he says, I am the bread of life. He's using a physical analogy to begin to point to a spiritual truth. And then watch the language he introduces. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. How does believing quench our physical thirst? It doesn't. That's because Jesus isn't talking about physical hunger and physical thirst. He's talking about spiritual hunger and, and spiritual thirst, soul hunger and soul thirst. And he's saying, if you come to me, if you believe in me, just as physical food and physical drink quenches your hunger and your thirst, so spiritual food and spiritual drink that I'm offering to you is going to quench your spiritual hunger and your spiritual thirst. Jesus is saying if we come to him, if we believe in him, he's going to meet our deepest needs. And, and if you stop and think about it for a minute, you realize, you know, Jesus is really on to something here. Think about just your day. You wake up, some of you wake up at five in the morning, you're on the train at six, you're in the city and in your office by seven, 
At about seven o'clock, you're back on the train. You get home by about eight o'clock. You get to kiss the kids goodnight if they're old enough that they haven't already gone to bed at seven or 7.30. You grab a fast dinner, you sit down. Maybe you watch the news. Maybe you get to talk with your spouse for a few minutes. You go to bed and you get up the next day and it's the same thing over and over again. And whether you're on the train, whether you are the taxi driver for your kids and every other kid in the neighborhood, whether you're traveling, whatever it is, our physical existence over and over and over again, it's screaming for us. And, it, and we stop and we ask ourselves and we say, isn't there something more? Isn't there something beyond this? And I think if we stop and ask ourselves that, we realize that, yeah, there is something beyond our mere physical existence. And Jesus is saying, that's why I came. Yes, I'm concerned about your physical needs. That's why he fed them. They had a need and he met that need. But he didn't stop with that. He used that need to point them to a deeper need, which they probably weren't conscious of at the time, but I think pretty much every human being, if we stop and think about it, we realize we have needs that are so much deeper than food and drink. And Jesus says, that's why I came. That's why I'm here. I wanna move you from your focus on the physical to a focus on the spiritual. And he says down in verse 27, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And if you've been around churches for any length of time, you know he's beginning to hint here, I'm gonna die so that you can have life. I'm gonna give my life for your life. And in the gospel of John, when he talks about eternal life, that does mean heaven, and what's gonna happen after we physically die, that our life continues spiritually in heaven with God forever. But in the Gospel of John, it's just not, it's not limited to the future, kind of pie in the sky, by and by after we die. It's here and now as well, a fulfilling life that goes beyond our mere physical existence. And so, so Jesus is beginning to introduce this concept and hint at this concept in order to get them to think outside of their own kind of myopic little boxes in which they live. But the people who were listening were still stuck in the, fear, in, the, in the physical realm. And so verse 52, the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is this guy, like a cannibal? And, you know, and, and Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. And there's that radical statement. And if we're honest, on the surface, it sure does sound like cannibalism and vampires and, you know, that sort of thing. But if you're following along in the context, you realize he's using a physical analogy to point to a spiritual truth. He's using something familiar to point to something unfamiliar. He's talking about just as Physical eating is the way to nourish our physical bodies. Spiritual believing is the way to nourish our spiritual, the spiritual part of us, our souls. 
And that's what he's trying to do with them. We need physical food to sustain our physical lives. We need spiritual food to sustain our spiritual lives. And Jesus is saying, I am the spiritual food that you need in order to sustain your your spiritual life. Now, depending on your church background, depending on what kind of a church background you come from, you may be thinking, this sounds an awful lot like communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And it does. And the correlation is there and you can see the connection between the two. But Jesus is not actually talking about communion here. He's not instituting communion here. He does that a year or two later uh, at the Last Supper. That's when he instituted communion. Here he's talking really about the spiritual reality that's behind communion. He's talking about what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. When we celebrate communion, we're remembering that Jesus gave his body for us, that he gave his blood for us, that he died so that we could have life. And he's laying down the foundation that he's later gonna use to institute communion. So John chapter six isn't really talking about communion. Communion is actually talking about John chapter six. So Jesus is trying to move them from the physical to the spiritual and they're still not getting it. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? It's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? At that time, Jesus probably had five, six, seven hundred disciples. We normally think of the 12, you know, Peter and James and John and those guys. And those were the ones who were closest to him. But he probably had five, six, seven hundred people who were following after him at this point. And some of those, not the 12, but some of those began saying, this is tough. I don't know if we can handle this thing. And aware, verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? You got a problem with that? Wait till you see me. Wait till you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before. Wait till you see me go back up into heaven. Then I'm really gonna shake your categories at this point. The Spirit gives life, verse 63. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of the Spirit. They're full of life. Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about the flesh. I'm not talking about the physical. I'm talking about the spiritual you got to break out of your mindset. You've got to see that that's what I'm talking about. But some of them had just had enough. Verse 66, so from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They said, we're out of here. This guy is nuts. We're done. Goodbye. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answers, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and we know, we know that you're the Holy One of God. Peter says, yeah, they may be taken off, but you're offering something so much more than fish and bread. You're offering eternal life. You're offering an abundant life. You're offering to quench my spiritual thirst and to satiate my spiritual hunger why would I want to go anywhere else? And that's the point that Jesus was trying to make with all of this. But why would he do it? Why would he do it by making such a radical statement as unless you eat my flesh and unless you drink my blood, you're not going to have eternal life? Why would he do that knowing full well that not everybody's going to understand him and knowing full well that some of the people are actually going to leave as a result of that. 
I think there are at least two reasons for this. First, he's trying to wake us up and help us to focus on our spiritual needs. And in order to do that, he chooses to make a shocking, radical statement. Because if he just did it in a nice, easy, simple way, it's not going to wake everybody up. So he's doing it that way. We know we need physical food. And we think about that a whole lot more than we think about spiritual food. But we need spiritual food just as much, maybe even more, than we need physical food. And so Jesus uses a shocking statement in order to wake us up, to grab our attention, and to get us to focus on our spiritual needs because we're so busy focusing on our physical needs because they're always present and they're always clamoring for our attention. So Jesus arrests our attention with this shocking statement. And secondly, he wants to encourage us to pursue him, but to pursue him on his terms and for his agenda as opposed to on our terms in our agenda, because he's the only one who can meet our spiritual needs, but he can only meet our spiritual needs his way as opposed to our way. Some of us sometimes want Christianity to be about feeding the poor and, and, and uh, feeding the hungry and clothing the poor and, and meeting the needs of the downcast and the downtrodden. And Jesus certainly is concerned about the poor and the needy, and he fed 15, 20,000 people here. But he's even more concerned about spiritual poverty and spiritual neediness. So yeah, Christianity is about helping the poor and needy, but it's more than that. And other people want Christianity to be about morality and right living. And Jesus is absolutely concerned about morality and right living, and he talks about it a lot. But all the morality and all the right living in the world doesn't restore our broken relationship with him. The foundation of our relationship with God is not our moralistic right living, though it's good to live good lives. The foundation of our relationship with God is trusting, is believing that Jesus died for us, that he sacrificed himself so that we could have life. And when we have that, when we have the right relationship with God, then we're going to want to live moral and right lives. So the morality doesn't lead to the relationship. The relationship leads to the morality. And then sometimes we try to reduce Christianity to kind of a pithy little, you know, 140 character statement, like all you need is love and fish and bread. You know, uh, all you need is love. No, we need love. Absolutely. But that's not all we need. Ultimately, we need Jesus and all that he has to offer, which includes love. And if we have Jesus, we're actually going to be much more able and much more wanting to love those around us. So all you need is love. No, all we really need is Jesus. And then we get the rest of it there. So when we have Jesus, we will love others and we will want to live good moral lives and we will want to help the poor and needy, but we'll want to do it not to earn God's favor, but because we share his heart. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to see. And we won't then, in that case, we won't have reduced Jesus to some sort of an inspiring teacher who fits our categories, helping the poor and needy, living moral lives, being able to 
quote him in pithy little statements to make us feel better about who we are. Instead, we'll have found a relationship with the God who gave his life for our lives, who died so that we could live, and we'll be so enamored with him that we'll want to advance his agenda, that our agenda is going to fade because we're going to be so excited about his agenda. Jesus wants to move us from our fixation on the physical to a focus on the spiritual. He wants us to stop looking at ourselves and really look at him. He wants us to pursue him on his terms and for his purposes. Last week, we talked about John the Baptist and we talked about how John pointed people to Jesus. And as he pointed people to Jesus, they left John and went and follow Jesus. And that's what we're about here at Renaissance, pointing people to Jesus because we believe he's the hope of the world. So this week, I wanna go one step further. We're not just pointing people to Jesus. We're pursuing Jesus because we believe that he has the words of eternal life. And that is so much better than just bread and fish. So we want to pursue Jesus, to know him, to develop a relationship with him and find that when we have him, we find that he's satisfying our deepest needs that go so far beyond our physical needs. And one of the ways in which I want to encourage you to do this is keep reading through the gospel of John. I know we've said this pretty much every week. We were encouraging you to read through it in September, October, and November. You get through it three times. Some of you are already done, read three or four times already. Some of you maybe haven't even started. It doesn't matter. Just start this week or continue this week. Read a chapter or so a day. Just If you skip a day, just read, the, read it the next day and flip the page over, move the bookmark. And last week, I was encouraging you, as you're reading the Gospel of John, Put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of the disciples who are following, the people who are encountering Jesus really for the first time, and ask yourself what drew them to Jesus, what attracted them to Jesus, and think about how that relates to your own life. And then this week, I want you to take that one step further and ask yourself, how did their agenda match up with Jesus' agenda? Where was it the same and where was it different? In this particular case, a lot of them, their agenda was just fill my stomach. Jesus wanted to fill their soul. Huh, little disconnect there. Others of them were beginning to get it. And then ask yourself, where am I? How does my agenda match up with Jesus' agenda? And ask him to really turn your heart to become more and more like his heart. And then my other suggestion is Pray thoughtfully, pray in a sense, self-consciously. As you're praying this week, stop and ask yourself, are most of the things I'm asking for, for my own selfish desires and agenda, many of which are quite good. There's nothing wrong with praying that you'll you know, be able to make the presentation at work well or for safety as you're traveling or you know, whatever it is that you're, that you're concerned about. But so often that's all our prayers are about. And we sometimes treat Jesus kind of like this cosmic vending machine. We put in the right coin, push the right button, pull the right lever, and out comes the answer to our prayers. And it's really self-centered and self-oriented. Ask yourself, how often are my prayers like that? And how often then, by contrast, are my prayers for the things that I know he really wants for me, first and foremost is that I know him and I love him and I follow him, I pursue him 
and I point others to him. So just, just be aware of the way in which you pray and ask God to change your heart so that more and more and more your prayers will be in line with his desires for you. And then finally, take some time this week to imagine, to dream, just to think about what if, what if I really pursued Jesus with my whole heart for his agenda, on his terms, with a desire that I would know him better and better and better. What would my life be like if that were true? What would my family's life be like if that were true in my life and in their lives? What would my church be like? What would Renaissance, what would this community be like if that were what was going on in each of our hearts? And then pray and ask God, to make that a reality. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, it's amazing. You feed 15, 20,000 people with a few loaves and a couple of fish, and yet you do it not just to feed their physical stomachs, but to point them to yourself as the bread of life, the one who can meet our deepest needs. And it is so easy for us to be so focused on the physical and to lose sight of the spiritual. And I pray that this week, as we spend time reading the gospel of John, as we spend time praying more and more and more, I pray that our hearts would be turned to you. I pray that we would pursue you with our whole hearts, recognizing that where else would we want to go, but you've got the words of eternal life. And so I pray that you would make that true in my life and in the lives of all who are here this morning. And I thank you for your incredible love for us that you gave your life so that we might live. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out this morning. Hope you'll come back to the town hall tonight and next weekend as well. Thanks.